I have multiple people that don't have college education or just come from, let's call it a um, colorful background. And those have been, you know, some of my best employees and are the future of the company. Um, so right now, I'm I, what am I doing is I'm building out my staff so that they know how to build out staff underneath them so that when, when I'm gone, they just know how to hire for people. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome back, my great to wealth listeners. Today we have the pleasure to talk to Michael. I'm gonna butcher his last name, even though he just told me Abanadis. It's good. Okay, all right. I get a thumbs up from him for those of you who are, who are listening to in the podcast, audio podcast, audio version. It, it's Mike. Mike has an interesting background. That's a lot of different things he has done. He has his hand in a lot of different things. He manages over 850 properties right now, 50 of his own, and rest for others. He has a sheep farm when we were talking about. It's kind of like funny how different people do different things. That's what I love about being a podcast host, that you get to learn so much. And hopefully, as my listeners, you're drawing value out of these, uh, these episodes as well. Because what, what we're going to have a conversation about Mike and his inspiration and what led him to do a lot of different things, what he did. I mean, you know the journey that we always take as a listener. Nothing new. Mike, welcome to my Great Tool Show, buddy. How are you? Hey, Socket. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. Same here, Mike. Mike, so before we get into your story, tell us what do you think when you hear the term migrate to wealth? Migrate to wealth, they're probably, uh, yeah, and I'm going into this a bit blind to be transparent to your, your That's listeners. Perfect. I didn't um, give you any heads up. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of probably first generation immigrants that are coming over and trying to build something in, in, in wherever they're moving to. It, it exactly is, right? Kind of like I think we define the word wealth a little bit more holistic. It's not just money. Uh, and it is first and second generation immigrant that we're focusing on. But really, everyone's, a, everyone's an immigrant. Uh, and we're always migrating from one place to another, either physically or mentally or emotionally. So with that said, Mike, tell us your migration story to wealth. Yeah, so I guess you could say I had a little bit of the standard opener in... Uh in getting myself into landlording, I was working a corporate nine to five. Um, I actually worked for DeWalt Power Tools for a number of years. And uh, I was in the, the, let's call it where finance and sales hit each other. Like we'll call it the commercialization department. In that department, we had a wheel and deal. We were making deals with Home Depot, Lowe's, et cetera. And uh, we were figuring out price points for different items and, and, and making a deal with them, how to get our products sold or in the line of one of these retail stores. And uh, I, it was a cube farm there, uh, like any other corporation. Um, and one of my in the cube farm, one of my buddies, who also was in the same position as I was, overheard me. Um, and I was definitely more of the wheeler and dealer type in that uh, in that role. And he he came up to me. He's like, "Yo, uh, Bonadies, why don't you um have you thought about being a landlord? Uh, it's pretty much the same exact stuff that we're doing for for Dewalt, but you can make a lot more money for yourself." And uh, at the time, I had not looked into anything real estate related, um, despite being in, let's call it the construction tool business. And uh, I looked into it and then I found out the mechanics of the business was a lot like what the deals we were brokering with uh, like Home Depot, Lowe's, et cetera. And uh, I decided I'd, I'd learn a lot about it and then go and I would go on to buy my first duplex, which I would house hack. And uh, yeah, after that, it was just one thing after another, after another. But uh, yeah, my first property I would buy would be a house hack a duplex, which I bought sight unseen outside of a video. 
I in an area I hadn't even wasn't living in at the time. I just and had a real estate agent. Your first investment property, Mike. Oh my God, dude, you are you're a brave man. You're a brave man. <laughs> well, I knew the area really well, so I just needed to to know the house, and I just had a real estate agent, you know, take a video tour, and the numbers made sense, and it looked good enough, so I was like, yeah, buy it. And so the time I go, the first time I walk inside the property is the day of closing. How did you feel? Oh, I felt it, it felt awesome. It was it was so. I'm glad I got what I got. I was excited. Uh, I was more excited, you know, to be transparent. I was probably more excited about the numbers and like, hey, I was living for almost mortgage free, and then I knew when I moved yeah. out, I would make a decent chunk of change. So worst case scenario is like, oh, I'll just you know toughen up and deal with it for you know two years if I didn't like it, and then and then move out. But I ended up liking it a lot. So uh, I lived there for uh, you know a, a, a couple of years. And, and because the savings that I got house hacking, I was able to go and invest in, in other deals. So I go and, and real quick, I, I think it's important for like, um, I've built a niche in, in, in landlording slash real estate. And I decided actually, I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time when I bought my first property, but I didn't start in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. I actually decided to move to South Jersey, where I'm originally from, because I was looking at the spreads of of how much you know it costs to buy a property, what the property taxes are, and what the rents are. So rents are pretty high in New Jersey, um, but where I'm from in South Jersey, and I'm not talking about like when everybody thinks of New Jersey, they're thinking of like Perth Amboy, Bergen right. County, you know that area. I'm from like the uh, where the New Jersey Devils from kind of area, so like really deep south, Pine Barrens. Uh, we like to joke around and call ourselves Swampers. So I, I'm from a really rural section where the taxes are nowhere close to where they're up in North Jersey. Right. So I moved to this area because I, the spreads made a ton of sense. And uh, I would go on to later develop systems that made sense for this area. But I just picked the area based on the spreads. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to pick up everything and uh, drop off here. And uh, we're going to make it work. And that's what happened. Wow. So wait, where, where in D.C. were you, Mike? I was living in uh, near Tacoma Park uh, slash wow. Silver Spring. Well, we just moved from uh, from Arlington, to yeah. Raleigh, North Carolina. Yeah, I mean, I love D.C., but you're right. The spreads in D.C. are not going to make sense uh, in any no, market. And the, it never did. Yeah, and it's a very regulated uh, right. city. It's got a lot of like, uh, I don't know if they still have it, but tenants have the right uh, of purchase Payment. and everything. Payment. I sold my condo in D.C. back in probably about five or seven years ago now, and I'm so glad I did because I knew, and my tenant was there for over 15 years. I knew if I'm going to have a new tenant, I had a choice between new tenant or sell. I just picked sell. Like I know he's not going to have an issue with that, uh, but but it's it's painful. It's painful. So that, that's amazing. So now you move to uh, South Jersey. You start buying into uh, your own properties. So tell me this. When did you pivot from buying for yourself versus managing for others? Yeah, so that, that's a little bit of an interesting story. We, we actually... I, I definitely found a little bit of an atypical path here because I, I go for my first deal, which is just a duplex, and then I go on to buy a 10-unit portfolio next. Now, I, I put an asterisk. I kept my nine to five, and I do think right. that's important if you're going to go straight into the rental space. You need you need to have supplementary income. But I bought a 10-unit deal with two other fellas, and uh, me and another fella hit it off. And, we, we, and I realized when I'm managing, like when we get into this 10-unit portfolio – I kind of have a knack for these for this operations. I might have some natural talents, I start thinking to myself, because I go from managing my 10 unit to start managing my other buddy who I went to this deal with, had 50 properties at the time. And he asked me to start managing his properties. And I realized I've got a, a little bit of an, opera, an operator mindset. And uh, 
you know, for those of you in the rental space, you might hear the word operator, especially like syndication deals. Those are people that kind of understand how the nuts and bolts work and get right. and pretty much make sure right. the machine works. So I realized I had a little bit of a talent for this. I, I knew how to navigate South Jersey and um, people started coming to us. Um, for those of you who aren't from South Jersey or New Jersey, it's a highly regulated state for rentals. You're, you're looking at the next closest place for regulation is California, both New Jersey and California, like to duke it out for who's, mm. who's more regulated. Um, and it's also there's small town vibes, especially in South Jersey. So now you're dealing with small town politics of like maybe a town of 10, 15,000 people. You need to know how to navigate um, those isms. And I was I was proficient at navigating them. So people started coming to us and saying, hey, can you start taking care of this chore, this, the, whatever. And then we realized, wow, a lot of people are coming to us. Why don't we start a property management company? There's also some other isms here, again, about niche building. In New Jersey, there's regulation that that makes it mandatory that if you're going to have a rental in New Jersey, you must have someone in the county in which your rental exists. Mm. You can't be a straight up out of state investor in uh, New Jersey. It was more so South Jersey than in North Jersey. Um, they require someone to be in the county. So there wasn't a lot of people to, to, there wasn't a lot of property managers to pull from. And even at this date, I'm very lucky. I'm very blessed. Uh, uh, Terravestra has done very well. We're probably the largest, if not one of the largest property management companies in deep South Jersey. Now we're not talking a very populated area. So yeah. everybody keep contacts, context on that. But for instance, a lot of national operators don't operate in New Jersey or South Jersey because they can't make it work. So we were like, okay, why don't we become a re like we got people asking us there's uh, natural barriers to this area. Why don't we make it work? Cause then people will come to us and that's what happened. I'm so sorry. I was coughing while you're finishing. I'm just recovering from a cough. So uh, <laughs> if people hear that awkward pause, it's because I was unmuting myself. So Michael, I, I love, I love that story, man. So, so were you still, at what point did you decide to leave your nine to five? In this entire journey? Yeah. So I was probably about two years into the property management company. And it's it's worth noting, I, I actually had mastered the four-hour work week with like my, my nine to five. So I had a choice in front of me. I was mm. like, I could I could sit on a six-figure job, nine to five, not nine to five, four-hour work week. And I was building up this property management company, or I could cut loose, try to make this property management company or property management company, a couple other companies. Uh, that are co let's say commingled with it work, and um, I ended up going the uh, the latter route and uh, subjecting myself to more pain. But uh, it was I just made yeah, it was it was well worth it. So I actually landed this big contract with uh, with what what would become one of our largest clients in in property management. And when we landed it, I had uh, enough runway in my personal banking uh, bank account for like six months. Um, so I was like, you know what? I, I was in my 20s at the time, my late 20s. Let, let's let let's give this a shot. And um, I got six months to make it work. And if it doesn't work out, I'll just go back to nine to five. Right. And so I pulled right. the cord. And um, you know, six months later, I ended up metabolizing everything. And um, I guess, uh, well, I should say not six months here. We're now six years later. And we're doing pretty good for ourselves. So it worked That's out. That's amazing. So, Mike, let's go back to the time when you made that decision. Right? Because I think mm -hmm. a lot of people may be in that space or maybe thinking about it. And it's very daunting, right? So when, uh, when you have, especially when you're starting a business, because the, as I've learned in my business life, that there's no, there's no consistency. You can make $20 one day. You can make 200000 the other day. You can make 50 k the other day. You can make $5 the other day. It's just so much variability. 
yes, in the end, it all smoothens out. It all averages out. But life's not an average because when you when the cash crunch comes in, you can't say, wait for another two months for me to make a 100K. It just doesn't work that way, right? So when you were trying to make that determination for you, I know you had a six-month uh, runway, but that six-month runway is also based on everything going right. And, and life could, things could go wrong in life. So you were in 20, so there was a lot of few things that could go wrong because you didn't control a lot of these things. Like, I mean, there's only limited expenses and your life is there. But when you're in 30s and 40s, when you have a family and when you got other things depending on you, when you're starting to worry about kids' education, if you put yourself in those people's situation, and I'm not sure if you have ever had to put yourself in, in other podcasts and all, but I would love to see how would you rethink about it? What would you want it to have in place before you make that decision or would you again jump in and say that i'll tell you my personality is i jump in and i'll figure it out and i'm i hope everything will work out uh, but i'll have a plan b in case it doesn't work out i have a plan b so i'm interested in how you think about it that's a really hard question for me to answer because i'm again i'm not i'm only in my early 30s right now so i i, I don't have kids and I think that's probably going to be the biggest concern for most of these individuals is like, what are you going to do about the kids? I, I think if I had to put them, put them, put myself in their shoes, I would say, I'm going to give you two answers. The first is if you've got a significant other, a life partner, talk to them about it and see if you can figure out a way that like, okay, can we tighten up the expenses yeah. for six months and rely on one person's income while the other person builds the business? And then yeah. see, and then reevaluate after six months. Um, that that's probably my pragmatic advice, um, so that you can still. So, and then I, I mean, depending on where the age of your kids are, t- have the conversation with them. Now, if they're too young to have the conversation with, that's just you and your life partner. But if they're teenagers, you know, there there's probably a way to involve the family. Um, I run I run yeah. my own business like a family, so I, I, I'm very uh, I, I'm very much get you know you, you want to get everybody on the same page with that. The other answer I give you is it, it has to deal with making sure your business can be let loose. I, there is definitely a tendency for, for people to romanticize burning the boats, uh, you know, and, and, and burning the bridge and going off for it. While I, I did do that, let me tell you, I ran the business for two years first and I made sure every, all the bills were getting paid for. Yeah. And my, my number one advice, in fact, it's funny because my P&L came in today from, from my, my on-staff accountant. Your P&L should look boring as hell. If you have a really well-ran business, your P&L is going to look super boring. The numbers are barely going to change. It's going to step up little by little. And a boring business is a good functioning business. If you've got inbounds and outbounds that are out the wazoo, uh, if you've got one month showing negative, another month showing positive, another month showing negative, you're probably not ready to cut loose on that business. Um, And I, I, and I, that's you're hearing a lot of. I used to manage P and Ls with the with the wall, and you're hearing that you know, translate over. I train. I just translated that over to, to to landlording. I think your business should be boring, and all the staff, their wages should be at least self sustaining in the business. It, 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 when I cut ties with my nine to five, that was a personal decision on my own income. It wasn't my staff's. Like my my staff's income was not in jeopardy at the time. Yeah. Um, so I just worked double duty that entire time. Again, I know that's not a luxury afforded to everyone, especially if you're in your thirties and forties and you've got a family, but I think you have to, at that point, like I said, you, you have to, you have to involve your, your, your life partner, um, at that point yeah. and say, Hey, you know, what, what are, are we going to try to do this together? And this is the potential, 
you're going to make a decision of, okay, potential hardships for the next two to three to four years for a lot of outcome or a lot of upside later on. Or you say, I don't know if I have it in me or if I want these potential strong hardships for, for three to four years for, um, I, I, you know, in my life. So that's how I think. And it takes a while to stabilize a business. It took me a long time to recover. And I know other people can do it faster, but for me, I'm just speaking for what what I went through a number of years. You've done a phenomenally well, Mike. Mike, so for you, I know you had a six month runway, right? So you said that if it doesn't work in six months, how did you define it doesn't work or it does work? What was your metric? Oh, I wanted to recover what I was making in, in, like I wanted to make sure that I, I think I, I don't remember the exact metric I used. I want to say it was like 60% of what my income was at the time of when I quit. I was making six figures. So that was already yeah. decent you know, income. So if I'm making like 60 G's a year uh, as, as a, you know, as a non-married dude, like I'm, I'm living all right. Like, but if my bills aren't paid for and I'm making 60 grand a year, I'm, I'm screwing up somewhere. Yeah, so definitely. definitely. Yes. So that's how I looked at it. I looked at it as like, Hey, can, can, am I, am I able to take draws? And, and, and again, I'm a prop, I have a very property management. It's a very monthly cycle based uh, business. You, you right. kind of have consistency there. I built in draws right off the rip. Uh, so I paid myself a draw every single month and it, it either worked or it didn't. Um, and then I increased that draw over time. I don't do the, um, it, it, it's kind of like that profit first mentality though. I don't, I'm not a believer of profit first. I, 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 I you, you want to make sure that you're baking in draws because additionally, if you build the business right, you should build yourself out of the business. So my draws later right. become the salary of whoever takes over and then I should be making more money on top of that, right? So if you think about how the business should run in the future, if you plan to put the framework in now, it, it'll it'll regurgitate itself. And I lo- love, Mike, what you just said because I think and, and you said a few different things. So I'm going to try and synthesize that in a way that makes sense to me. So I think part of that is you said that a boring business is a great business, right? Which makes a lot of sense because uh, if the business is a lot of variability, you're you're doing something something that's either in the business that has a lot of variability and you have to accept it, but most businesses are boring, at least if they're revenue producing. Even the big corporations, those businesses are boring. And what you want to do is what you said very, very eloquently is that you are trying to work yourself out of the business so that you can replace you can be replaced by somebody else. And, and I think a lot of people look at it incorrectly because they think that they're going to go sit on a beach and drink Mai Tais and, and that's all they want to do. But I think in, it's really the case of as an entrepreneur, you're not a manager, you're not an operator, you're an entrepreneur, which by definition, and you're going to figure out how to grow this business disproportionately in your favor, right? So the boring pieces, somebody else can take care of. Now you think about another another line of business. Then you think another line of business. Then you think another line of business. And you're busy where you need to be busy. So that doesn't mean your life's boring. All that means is you've built some, in some aspects of your business, you've built predictability. Because you need to do that. Because people, they're working. You can't tell them, I'm going to pay you six months later. Just trust me, you're going to get paid. It doesn't work. You will have no team, right? And for those of you who have never tried it, Stop, stop, try, try doing that for two months. You'll realize your team is not that loyal to you anymore because they have to pay bills, right? It just doesn't work. So Mike, as you have built predictability and as you have tried to now wean yourself out of these day, day-to-day jobs for property management, how are you growing the business? What other different aspects are you looking into? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a big, uh, there's a couple ways we can tackle this. I, I really 
enjoy uh, building out my team in their personal development. So like right now, it was funny when I first started the company, I was like, oh man, I might have people like, I might have employees of myself that will directly hire. And I managed people before I got into uh, my own business, but it's definitely different to be the owner of the business and have the employee versus being a manager for like a corporation. It's different. So at first I was like, I have, you know, I, it was, it was going to blow my mind if I had my own employees. Then I went to go on and have my own employees. Then my own employees have their employees. Then my own employees have employees that employees. And I'm like, Whoa, this is now, um, I, you know, I I really enjoy building up uh, my my high end management staff. I like building up everybody, but the guys that, and the gals, there's both guys and gals that have been with me since like day one. Um, I really enjoy, you know, getting them up to higher positions and putting more money in their pocket and then working with them on their own personal projects. So a little bit of the special, uh, I don't want to say special sauce, but some of the things I do from a managerial perspective is I've got some employees that had their own business ideas they wanted to try out. Mm. So I funded their business ideas to go build out for them, you know, for themselves. And now I'm part of that company. They're part of my company and we're all still interacting with, you know, one another. I got other guys that wanted to, I I have multiple people that, that don't have college education or just come from, let's call it a, um, a colorful background. Uh, And uh, those have been, you know, some of my best employees and are the future of the company. Um, So right now I'm, what am I doing is I'm building out my staff so that they know how to build out staff underneath them so that when, when I'm gone, they just know how to hire for people. They just yeah. know what to do and yeah. how to build it and whatnot. Um, I also pass on, I try to pass on the culture of what I want the company to be uh, moving forward. So I had that going on. Am I building out the, the, the business and putting more units into the, into the system? Absolutely. Uh, knock on wood here. I won't actually knock because uh, I don't want to mess up the mic, but the company is kind of feeds itself. Uh, we have a very strong niche. Um, but that, that's what I'm working on. The other thing that uh, I, I'm going to go with a little bit, I know exactly isn't the theme of the, the, the podcast here, but there comes a point in your life when you start building businesses that you've built the business, you've succeeded. And I have a choice in front of me. It's like, do you go down like the Elon Musk route of just like constantly building businesses and that's your entire yeah. life? Or do you go down the route of, well, I'm satisfied uh, monetarily wise what are the things that I wanted to do as a person, not so much as just an entrepreneur? So that's the life choice. I don't have the answer to that. That's the life choice in front of me, but that's the things that I'm working on. No, that's amazing. And um, I'm glad you said that because I think uh, the theme of our show is not about money. It's really about uh, freedom and doing mm-hmm. what you really need to be doing free. And we have a balance of, we always talk about your mind, your body, your relationships, your money, and your impact all these five dimensions have to align themselves to make sure you you feel fulfilled. Because if you have the money, but you don't have the mindset of a wealthy person, then you're not, or your relationships are not there, or your impact, your purpose is not there. Like you said it beautifully, what do I want to be? What do I really want to do as a person? I know what I want to do as a businessman, but what do I really want to be as a person? It's, it's one of the most important questions. But I think, you know, what's happening though is though, this business has given you the ability to take some time to reflect because what hap- what's happening for most of the people are they're doing nine to eight. I won't even say nine to five. Like people are working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. When are they going to have the time to reflect on themselves and what do they really need? There's no time. There's just no time. Right. And then, um, then it's, it becomes a vicious loop where 
let me work, let me work, let me work, and let me make money. And then when I have money, I'll look for my freedom. So you're sacrificing your freedom to make money to find freedom. When the freedom was there to begin with, we just sacrificed it. It's kind of like very interesting loop that I, I mean, we just did a four-day conference, uh, my Great to Wealth Summit. And that was really the theme of it that, look, you can, make, you can make a lot of money. Great. But you can do it in a way that you actually feel better. So why don't you focus on what do you really want? So I'm, I'm glad you're asking that question now, Mike. And I think I have a feeling that you always had that question in the back of your mind. You just can, you're just now paying a lot more attention to it than before. So I appreciate you saying that, Mike. Mike, I know we also talked about in South Jersey, a lot of your portfolio has a very specific kind of rentals. And for those of my listeners who don't understand Section 8 housing, can you elaborate on, um, it's a government-funded uh, program. So t- talk a little bit about how you built your portfolio in that, because there's a lot of stigma attached. As I was telling you, I have a few of my own that, that are managed by my property management company, and I can't get rid of them fast enough because... There was a shooting on one of them. Now, in my mind, I'm classifying every Section 8 as that. But we were also talking about that, look, not every Section 8 program is created equally. Not every Section 8 tenant is equal. So give a little bit of uh, understand your understanding because you're managing these properties for somebody. How are you looking at Section 8? What is right? What is wrong? Let's maybe break down some of these stigmas. Yeah, absolutely. So let's take real quick. What is Section 8? Section 8 is government funded or subsidized housing. This typically comes in uh, three forms. One is for income. So in other words, the individual gets a voucher because they do not make a certain income threshold. This is actually the least common of the Section 8 vouchers that I see in South Jersey. Mm-hmm. The other two are as one is for physical disability. They're so they're disabled in such a way that they get a voucher from the government. And then the third is mental uh, disability. They are disabled in such a way that they get a, a voucher from the government. And, uh, and Michael, I'm government- sorry to interrupt, but um, these three is not just South Jersey. You're now talking about the national program, correct? Yeah, it's, I, I'm, I'm speaking just a, a ratio in South Jersey. But yes, all three is what is used in, in all of the, okay. the, the federal government. Now, I will say, caveat asterisk, it's worth noting, Section 8 is actually a federal program that is implemented by the state. So in other words, the money is given to the state and then the state kind of does it on how it wants to do it. Now, there is some government. We don't have to get into that minutia, but there's some federal contracts. But each state can implement it in the way they feel fit while following certain guidelines. So these individuals have these vouchers and they subsidize their housing. And so usually Section 8 pays for a majority of the housing and then the, the tenant has to pay for a subsection of it. Now, Section 8 gets the reputation of being you know, being part of the hood, right? Because that's where you tend to see a lot of it. You're yeah. being you're in these bad areas, a lot of crime. Tenants don't keep good care of the units. I actually would, would, would venture to say that is not correct. Uh, that's probably just a stereotype of it. Um, if you look at, and, and again, I'm going to try to context certain things. So if you look at Section 8 pre two, two year, pre one year ago, pre let's call it 2022 in New Jersey, Section 8 vouchers were the gold. It was gold. You, once you got the voucher, hey, it took you multiple years to get the voucher and you did whatever it took to keep that voucher. Because once you got kicked off, once you get kicked off, you're done for life for the most part. So tenants would do what was needed to keep the voucher uh, intact and, right. and, and, and everybody satisfied. 
that changed a little bit in 2022 uh, because New Jersey released a bunch more, but we don't have to get into that. The the uh, another thing uh, worth noting is let's say we're going to have a a, a a tenant, uh, uh, if I'm going to take a subsection of tenants, of section eight tenants, I would say about nine out of ten, nine out of 10 of them are great tenants. And then you get one bad apple that exists in the mix. Uh, uh, but um, what's worth noting about section eight and why landlords do it is the, it's a higher margin business. Uh, usually the voucher pays anywhere between a hundred to $200 more uh, per door in that zip code. And they know that because it's more of a pain in the butt to deal with the program. There is a lot of red tape. You need to have a lot more staff members. You're dealing with one of the most bureaucratic forms of the government out there. So you need to have the systems built out for that. And they know it's a pain. So they, in, they, they encourage landlords to take them by, by, by increasing the amount of rent that you would see versus market rent. It's also worth noting, and why I personally got into the Section 8 business, is I saw a trend coming. And this trend, sadly, is coming true. I don't want it to be true, but it, 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 it's coming true. There are two types of people that can currently pay for rentals in New Jersey. Uh, you have the luxury housing people, uh, which can afford anything because they're buying luxury housing. And then you have Section 8, who can afford it because they have vouchers coming in. Right. Um, the increase of supplying housing in New Jersey has increased quite a bit over the last couple of years, especially with the COVID regulations. And there was other things happening way before that too that are kind of causing this uh, to snowball further. The blue collar middle America housing for rentals is kind of evaporating, uh, expect, well, specifically in New Jersey. I can't speak for the rest of the nation where you've got these people that can maybe afford a three bedroom on $1,400, $1,500, maybe $1,600 a month. And, and three beds realistically need to be going for, uh, based on how much the cost of supply then, anywhere between $1,750 to $1,950, right? So we've got this We've got this uh, uh, disconnect occurring where the cost right. of supply housing doesn't make sense to middle America. So I saw all this happening and I'm like, well, we have to get into the Section 8 space because voucher uh, voucher counts are going to increase. And lo and behold, last year, New Jersey released something. I think it was 20,000 new vouchers uh, out into the, wow. the system. So, you know, I, I personally think there's an economic trend to go inside of Section 8. So I know I guess just gave you a ton of information. I'll let you beat no, that this out. Is, this, is, this is actually very good because I think it's uh, most people, I think it goes, be, uh, it goes without even saying any further that a lot of us make judgments based on lack of understanding, right? That Section 8 is one thing. Real estate investing is another. Uh, being a corporate job is another. Being a business is another. We make a lot of these judgment calls based on incomplete information. So part of that is what you what you just told us is it's really a lot. I don't think a lot of people even know the three different types of subsection within Section Eight, which is income based, physical disability, and mental disability. Most people may not even know that, right? And you could look at Section Eight and classify yourself into subsections within there to see if there's one that resonates better for you and with you. Uh, to make sure you can you can embark on the journey. But also it's more important is each state is going to have different way of managing Section 8, right? So maybe it's working great for Mike in South Jersey, uh, but maybe North Carolina is not. I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but it, maybe it's not the right place for Section 8, right? Maybe somewhere else it is. So you have to also think about is don't make blanket statement that, hey, real estate is not for everyone or housing market is crashing or this is happening or that is happening. <laughs> Excuse me. You have to really pay attention to what's your target audience, right? In Mike's case, it was affordable housing. 
which was the uh, which is a service offering he's building around. For that, Section 8 worked great. And it's unfortunate that the number of Section 8 housing is increasing. But where we are, given inflation and everything else and this business cycle, the economic cycle we're in, it's not going to change, right? At least in the near future. Hopefully it changes. And I'm sure Mike, even though his business is coming from there, he would hope that it changes. But the reality is that chances are it's not going to move in favorable direction anytime soon. But, uh, but it's also at that point, that means that those individuals need housing and the government cannot provide housing. So somebody has to provide accommodation for folks who are in, as part of the Section 8 housing. And there's nothing wrong in making money if you're able to sustain that. I mean, to your, to your point, Mike, the state is offering you $100, $200 more than market rent. So they already understand it's hard to work with us. Now, that's unfortunate. They say that uh, they can't fix the bureaucracy because they won't. And they could, they could pay $100 less because they're bringing consistency. That's, that's such, a, such a bizarre way of doing things. But it's fine. It is what it is. That, hey, we, can't, we won't make it more efficient and charge you more, charge you, uh, make you charge less rent. But we're not going to make it more painful for you and just we'll give you $100, $200 extra. It's just insane. <laughs> So, Mike, I, I love what you just said, and thank you for sh- going deep into that. So where do you see it happening? If somebody were, somebody were to delve into Section 8 housing uh, as their business offering or their portfolio, how can they learn more about it? And where, where are there resources available? Or maybe you have developed some resources. Where can they learn more? Yeah, so this is probably the million dollar question because it's almost exclusively tribal knowledge, which is nuts mm. to say. It's such a large program that is carried out federally has almost no resources going for it. And that's really the truth, Um, at least in South Jersey. It's almost exclusively ran by or the knowledge is held between a handful of people. And we talk Mm. to each other and try to help each other out. There's not really a strong way to go about it. My, my, my suggestion is to join a local RIA, which is a real estate investors association, there, you're going to probably find a cranky old man or woman who's a, 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 a landlord, who's been a landlord for many, many years. Yeah. They're probably your best knowledge source. I certainly did that with Myria. And, uh, and then I just learned as I went. There's definitely a bit of relationship building that occurs in Section 8. Now, this is harder to pull off in large cities where you are competing with a thousand other landlords. I am not competing with a thousand other landlords. I can just walk into the Section 8 office and build relationships over time. I also spend a lot of time knowing landlord-tenant law and understanding it. And that is very critical if you want to be a land, uh, an affordable housing operator because you're going to see items like that. So I don't really give you a silver bullet answer because there's not really a silver bullet that, to my knowledge, that exists out there. You just build it over uh, a lot of time. What I will say and and take this as someone who's went from a a few to a lot, it is a large scale play. You are not just a onesie, twosie section eight landlord. You are a hundred section eight landlord. You need to have enough size and weight with your section eight office that you matter. Otherwise you'll be lost in the mix with the rest of the government bureaucracy. I think that that's another important point, right? And that's where it begins of it's a who, not how question. Whether you have to understand, is that something you want to do full time? Not even full time. That if, you, if you're only going to build two or three or four portfolio property, just like myself, I don't think I had it in me for what Mike did. And kudos to Mike for doing that. I grew up in India and I know what bureaucracy means. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that again. I'm like, I've spent a lot of, lot of years of my life dealing with that. 
I don't want to deal in that business. And for me, it was a conscious decision that I don't want to grow it. But if you're only wanting to do four or five properties, maybe you're better off in finding someone like Mike in the area that you want to, in the market that you want to explore. And every market has Section 8 type of offering. And some states have even more coupons, more programs than Section 8. So you want to explore that. But if you, if you are one of the brave hearts, they want to build a 100, 200, 300 unit property and portfolio, then you want to take a look at, learn and partnering with somebody like Mike was talking about, go to your local RIA. And if you don't know what a RIA is, you want to ask yourself a question. Do you really want to go into Section 8 housing or do you want to first understand what a RIA is? RIA, for <laughs> those who are uninitiated, it's really Real Estate Investment Association. R-E-I-A, RIA, right? It's where a lot of group of uh, local, every RIA has, it's an, it's every state, every city has a chapter of RIA where a local investors meet up, they have meetings, they have sessions, they have resources available to you. It's, it's not a lot to join. So I would definitely welcome you all to explore that. Um, if you haven't explored, if you haven't joined your local RIA yet and real estate is one of the passions for you, either active or passive, it doesn't really matter. As for Even if you're a passive investor, you should still join the local RIA because the resources you get there are going to be in. But beyond that, maybe you find somebody, an old man or an old woman who is a grumpy old man or old woman, I'm going to use Mike's words, where you they, want, they have the understanding, they have the knowledge and they want to pass on because their kids may not want to take it now. Right? Or they may have a life situation and they're willing to be your mentors uh, or partners and you can learn from them and you have a good start. Like remember in Mike's story, Mike had a great start because although he started with duplex and then 10, but he got the next 50 right away because he, he had the right partner, right? And that helped him scale his operations and build an offering around it. But if you're buying one property at a time, it's going to take a long time especially the market we're in right now, uh, right? Where properties are expensive. They haven't, they, depending on which market you're in, they may, they are seeing some corrections, but not a huge, uh, not a nationally uh, prevalent uh, phenomena yet. But it's hard to scale. Even if the market is crappy, it's hard to scale, especially at 850 units right now, right? To become Mike, it took a long time, took a lot of effort, took a lot of relationships, right? So don't just directly jump into Section 8. Section 8 is a great program if you're doing it correctly. So either partner with somebody or do it yourself, but do it with full understanding of what involved, what is involved in running a Section 8. Mike, did I, did I summarize it properly? Did I miss anything? No, and you hit a key part, which is get partners. This is a, uh, I don't want to use the cliche, but it is a team sport um, right. and uh, you need partners. So no, you, you nailed it perfectly. Awesome. Mike, we're going to shift gears here. We're going, to, we're going to go into a question where I always, towards the end of our episode, we always ask the question. One is, I know you're in your early 30s right now, but if you were to look back in time and for somebody who was in their 20s right now, what's one insight you'll give them that could change the trajectory of their life? I would say learn, it, it, learn to give up a little bit of um, comfort in your 20s to, to maximize comfort on later. I know that it's a little bit of carpe diem, especially, I mean, I'm a millennial, right? Millennials have this little bit of carpe diem uh, feeling. Um, I don't think they're so savvy with their finances. And um, I think that costs them dearly. Uh, I, I think if you learn to be a, a pinch a few pennies and especially your first Called it called twenty to twenty four, twenty to twenty five. Eat rice every day. I just certainly did. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. uh, I, I, you, that that little bit of savings right there turns into a massive amount of gain later. If you've taken any economics course, 
you'll learn right. that just a few dollars saved in early on multiplies quite rapidly. No, I, I, I love the mic because I think part of that is that if you're starting in your 20s, you also have less responsibilities, right? And the only person that you're taking risk for is you. Um, but as we progress through life, um, most of us have start to have families in late 20s, early 30s, late 30s. We're going to start having families. We're going to start for a significant other. And that point, even if you are ready to take a risk, you, you have somebody else to factor into your decision. And they may not like, remember, go back to our initial conversation, whether talk to your significant other, are we ready to do that? What if their answer is no? What are you going to do, right? You have two choices at that point, get rid of that person or try to convince them. But now you have an extra friction point. But if you're in early 20s, you decide to eat rice, you decide to eat rice. The other person doesn't, there is no other person that matters, right? So I love that. I think this is, this is a very important, and I think that goes not just for money. It actually goes to even taking risks about if you were to start a business or if you were to take a job that you thought you're not qualified for, take that risk early on uh, so that later on you don't have to take those many risks. Your life is a little bit on a different trajectory. So I love that. Michael, second question. It's going to be a little bit deeper question. Where do you feel when you reflect, because you're interacting with now what, 850 families at the very least, and they're all in different status fair, right? Kind of like different, uh, different reasons for them to come to you. When you reflect on them and their life and stories they're telling, even either directly or through your employees, where do you feel there's a gap in the humanity right now? Whoa, that's a deep question right there. All right, I'm gonna give a very American-centric answer here because I think it's different. And I've spent, as someone who's lived in different countries around the world, uh, I, I would say America has lost its uh, cultural cohesion. Uh, we like to, we've lost all of our daily rituals and the yeah. things that bind us together. Yes, there's reasons why we, we, we've almost given it all up for independence and to be, uh, you know, to, to say you can do anything. Well, that's true, but you should do it still within the context of, of your culture and of your community. We have no community. I, as I look at, at the people I interact with, um, there are, I feel that there's no longer a place where our community is, is, is evaporating. And that's, it, it, it deeply saddens me. Um, so it, it, it's tragic that that's happening. But I think if we find a way to bring back the daily rituals, um, to not automatically say, hey, I'm going to sue you or try to automatically go to litigation, to talk to someone, to have a mutual, even if you don't agree with that person, yeah. to mutually, let's say, agree to disagree, to have some kind of civil discourse, I, I, I think that would go um, a, a far way. Mike, this is great, man. I love that answer. Cultural cohesion, which is, I think, building the community. It's all, it's all about building the community, building your tribe, right? Because uh, tribe's the only thing that keeps you sane because everyone has a crazy life. So I appreciate that. So thank you again for that, Mike. Mike, as we wrap up the interview here, where, do, where can our listeners find you if they want to learn more about you, your programs and stuff like that? What do you offer and maybe work with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'm sure it'll be in the show notes if you guys have it, but our, we have a, a website for property management. It's www.terravestrapropertymanagement.com. I know that's a mouthful, uh, but it's T-E-R-R-A-V-E-S-T-R-A propertymanagement.com. Um, and then you can also, I'm, I'm open for emails. Email is the best way to do it. And I'll give you my email. It's mbonadies at tvpm.info. Um, feel free to, 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 to email me if you guys have an idea. Awesome, Mike. This is great, man. Thank you again for doing that. We will include these links in the show notes so that everyone has access to you. And, um, and Mike, thank you again for coming on the show. Appreciate it. 
Thank you for all the listeners for joining. If you're hearing this part of the conversation, that means you stayed through it. Uh, so kudos to you. Congratulations to you. Hopefully you got some insights that you can implement in your life right away. Our goal is to make sure your the insights you drive here pushes towards action, not just knowledge. Because knowledge without action doesn't mean anything. Uh, so with that said, thank you for tuning in and we will see you in the next episode. Michael, again, thank you for the, your time, buddy. Thank you, Sagat. Michael, hold on one second, man. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below.